week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. Hello, I'm Jake McDonald. I'm the director of Loveless Labs here at Loveless Biomedical in Albuquerque. And today I'm joined by Rob Amler, who is, we know as a vice president for governor of government affairs at New York Medical College. He's also dean for School of Health uh, Sciences and Practices and the Institute of Public Health at New York Medical College. And we're very happy to have you. Welcome, Rob. Well, thanks. It's great to be on the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, Rob, I know that you you have a, a very uh, great and and a lot of depth in your background, and I know you're have been in an academic setting you know, at, at a medical school the last uh, number of years. Uh, but I'm interested in, in in having you tell us a little bit more about your history before that, when you worked at the CDC and and uh, within government offices, and because it's really fascinating the story and how you came to be where you're at right now. Can you give me a little bit of perspective on that? Sure. It's been great over many years. I'm uh, board certified in pediatrics and also in preventive medicine. And uh, uh, most of my public health career was at the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, where I began as an Epidemic Intelligence Service EIS officer and gradually was promoted in various areas to uh, uh, lead as uh, chief medical officer, CDC's Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry, ATSDR, which uh, in shorthand could be called the public health arm of the EPA, the US EPA. Uh, in my last years in public health, I became regional administrator, regional health administrator for the US Department of Health and Human Services covering the Northeast region and the Caribbean uh, territories. Uh, I left federal government about 20 years ago and came to my current position at New York Medical College, where I divide my time between uh, teaching, some research administration, and even some continuation of clinical practice. I've been a practicing uh, physician for my whole career. And, and what do you like to do with your spare time? Well, there ain't much of that, as you might expect. <laughs> uh, but what I most enjoy doing is uh, skiing in the winter, uh, water sports in the summer, and uh, spending time with family and good friends. That's great. I want to, you know, what I was interested in talking to you about, I'm, I'm really fascinated you know, as we're, you know, moving our way through the last couple of years, which have been uh, interesting and challenging at the same time, exciting for us. We're a laboratory, as you know, that uh, specializes in infectious disease research and pulmonary biology. And, you know, we got in on the ground floor very early with this pandemic right away as, as uh, with both government agencies as well as, as pharmaceutical companies to try and understand how we can play a role, you know, in looking at everything from how do masks work, how do aerosols work, how do we look at efficacy and, and animal models to be able to look at how new drugs might be able to intervene everything from vaccines to treatments and things like that. And, and we were in the trenches every day showing up and, and, and working very hard doing that. And, and it was always fascinating to me on the regulatory side, how the information that was coming out of the labs was going to then uh, inform public policy. Uh, in real time, uh, probably more so or as much as we've seen, certainly in my lifetime. 
And I was interested to understand from your perspective in public health and also from the CDC, how does that work? You know, what do you, what do you think about? And you know, we we certainly read a lot of last couple of years, but you know, you you only you, you got to always take that with a grain of salt. How did what goes on behind the scenes when labs like us and and are are putting out information and and you guys have to digest that and you know put that out into policy decisions? Well, let's let's begin. You know, with our uh, prime. Uh, target organ, which is the human body. It's incredibly complex. The more we study, the more we learn. It's a real cliche to say a really good scientific question when answered leads to more excellent scientific questions. We learn more and more and more about that internal milieu, to quote Claude Bernard of many, many decades ago. You know, this internal milieu of how human cells uh, interact with each other, about how systems uh, maintain themselves, modulate themselves, and how we adapt as organisms to the environments that we are presented with. And all of this is the classic bench to bedside. Um, I tell my own students in public health and in medicine that the best pharmaceutical in the world cannot do anything for my patient if it stays inside the bottle. It's got to get into the patient under the right circumstances with the right uh, provisions for patient safety and uh, for the right duration, dose, all of those things. When that happens, we accomplish amazing things. Another cliche that I frequently still give to my students is when I go into a hospital today, and I think about what it was like literally 40 plus years ago when I started working in hospitals as a medical student. When I walk in today, I see patients in the um, regular floor of the hospital who in my day were the intensive care unit. And when I see patients in the new intensive care unit, these are people who, when I was in training, they were dead. They, they would never have made it to that stage. I mean, we do collectively an enormous job in keeping people healthy, uh, reducing the length of stay in hospitals, making medical care uh, better, and in some cases, more affordable, not as much as we'd like, but certainly in many cases, more affordable, and providing the kinds of modalities that were just not even dreamed of back then. Uh, I remember a conversation that actually my father had uh, when he was working on bone marrow transplantation in experimental animals, talking to one of uh, someone who later became one of my mentors in pediatric hematology oncology about possibly someday doing bone marrow transplantation in humans and particularly in children with leukemia. And at the time, the guy just shook his head and said, this would be great, but the children would never survive the operation. How would, how would you do it? You'd have to immunosuppress them so far uh, that they wouldn't survive. Well, we know how to do that now. Not perfectly so, but that's just an example of the kind of thing we can do. How do you think that uh, that's an interesting perspective? Not where I was going exactly, but it's an interesting perspective because 
you're thinking about it from the context of what we've been able to accomplish on the heels of a situation where we got caught flat-footed. And we responded in record time and did amazing things and built on a lot of great accomplishments over the past decades that should, should, should people should be amazed by. But what if at the bench, how has the last couple of years changed medicine? Cause it had to have, I mean, when I speak to intensivists, they're they're They, they have had to employ and integrate new ways to go about thinking about medicine and the humanistic side, we have burned out a lot of our physicians and a lot of the healthcare staff. And so what, you know, acutely and long-term have we gained from a physician standpoint medically? Well, I could say the population is living longer and is extending quality life longer. That's a matter of record. Now, year to year, you'll see some instability in certain metrics. That's, we all know that. We understand that as scientists. You're going to get some fluctuation. But by and large, you compare the beginning of the 20th century to the beginning of this century, and life expectancy at birth in the U.S., all ages, both sexes, all races, increased from in the 40s to up into the 70s. And if you think about this, upper 40s to upper 70s, and now it's even higher. But if you think about that, over a 100-year period, life expectancy went up 30 years. That's 30 years and 100 years. Or in other words, every week in the 20th century, on the average, life expectancy went up by three days. Right. Now, you know this is because everybody understands calculus. This is not going to go on forever. Right. But the fact is, we have extended. At some point. (laughs) That's right. But the point is, human potential for those lives that continued until full longevity or whatever that longevity will turn out to be. Think of the human potential and the fact that even though we have glaring disparities by race and ethnicity, and uh, these are things we have to continue to work on, that even that disparity is at long last beginning to narrow, not as fast as I would have liked it 30 years ago, but it is beginning to narrow. And so I'm very optimistic about the future of pharmacology, the future of medicine, the future of bench scientists, of bench science, but also translating that bench science more and more efficiently to the bedside where it's going to make a difference. Well, I know from from my perspective, I work in the area of drug development, and I can tell you that the last couple of years I've had a significant impact and and it has been a real, uh, it's catalyzed a lot of movement in a number of areas. One is infectious disease is popular again. <laughs> and, you know, believe it or not, on the non-clinical side, it, you know, basically people weren't interested in it for a variety of reasons uh, that, that are important. Um, and so that's, that's, that's important. And you know, we do a lot of work in gene therapy and, and, and that has traditionally been a, a, a discipline that has been growing in, in amazing amounts uh, over the past decade in particular. 
but it's always kind of been to the general public abstract and esoteric. The idea to use genetic material or mRNA or things like that in the context of a medicine, uh, certainly the last couple of years has in general uh, brought that to the forefront of public thought in terms of acceptance and understanding. Uh, we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of organizations that are working in that space and, and funding towards that space. And I think that that um, the success of, of what uh, and the catalysis that we saw uh, from from responding to the pandemic has certainly had a, had a big positive impact. And I, I, I so I know from the therapeutic side we will, and uh, I, and, and we'll see how that evolves over the next five to ten years. And. Uh, I, I wonder uh, for you if you see, uh, you know, broadly medicine continues to, to advance, public health continues to advance. Um, there are issues, as you mentioned. Um, but it, it, as I've seen a catalysis in what I do, uh, do you see that in medicine where it's accelerated even more over the last couple of years? I see it in a continuous, slow acceleration over time. Okay. And this is this is a very positive thing. Uh, yeah. The population is getting more sophisticated as well. And this is important because, like we say, the best medicine in the world, if it stays in the bottle, it's not going to do you any good. Uh, you would not believe the results of a survey. I was told I didn't read it myself, but I was quoted to me from a Kaiser facility. And remember, that's a closed uh, model healthcare system um, in which they have their own pharmacies, their own physicians, they have their own uh, imaging. You know, it's all kept in one uh, closed system for the most part. And they found that when their own physicians were writing prescriptions for patients, and this is now more than 20 years ago, things have gotten better. But I was really struck at the time that a surprising percentage of patients walking out the door, instead of stopping in the pharmacy in the lobby and getting the prescription filled, they would get back in their car and drive home. So here you had physicians writing prescriptions for something that presumably would be in the patient's best interest. And right. even though they could get it filled either free or for cheap, uh, they were still walking right past saying, ah, maybe I'll get it. Maybe I'll get it later. Or maybe I don't really need that. And that was a big disconnect. I think that has narrowed. I think one of the benefits of the latest pandemic has been that people have been hearing and reading and learning a lot more about vaccines, a lot more about medications, about viruses, about the great potential for harm that comes from pathogenic organisms. Even though early in my career, we heard lecture after lecture from policymakers saying, well, you know, infectious disease, we pretty much licked that problem. That won't be a problem anymore. Well, you know, tell that to the hundreds of thousands who died from uh, coronavirus this past year, the past two years. Uh, infection will always be a problem as long as there are multicellular organisms like us and microbes like them. And it will always be a problem, in my opinion. So um, this improvement in public awareness helps. Something you asked about earlier, Jake, just before we got started, was about this um, balance between science, 
driving policy and the political uh, environment in which policy has to be projected out to the population. Well, it turns out that policy, politics, population, these are all words that come from the same stem, which means the people, the people. And policy, politics, population are intrinsically linked. So you can't really project a policy without considering the political landscape. You need to consider the population and how they're going to receive it. I hate to say it's like agent, host, and environment, (laughs) but actually it's another example of agent, host, and environment. It just plays out instead of in vitro, it, it plays out, you know, in the real world. So a body like, yeah. That's a good question. So one thing I was thinking about relative to that, when you were at the CDC and you've kind of been in the trenches around these sorts of discussions, who's sitting around the table? You know, because you need a physician. You, you, it has to be multidisciplinary in how you approach it. And, uh, and so I presume that that's kind of what, what, what is happening. I have an economist and a this and a that and the other, and you guys are kind of sitting around weighing all these different things that go into these decisions. I think there's a view among the public in terms of public consumption of the CBC that there's some ivory tower with some person in a white coat, you know, on high making these things come down. But it can't be that way because you do have to weigh these things and do the best you can. I, I, how does that work? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. You know, it has to begin with scientific inquiry, which intrinsically must be humble. I mean, as scientists, we really should we should care that we get an answer to the burning question that we're trying to seek an answer to. But sure. we should be ridiculously. Uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, I'm looking for the word. We need to be extremely dispassionate about the outcome, right? I mean, we should be recording our results without rooting for either side. This is not the Super Bowl, okay? This that, that's is, just counter to, it seems, everything we consume in society. Everything is has passion to it, right? Yeah, and, and that's the way people feel. People want to go to the Super Bowl and they want to root you know, for the Rams, I'm dating myself now because we're in February of 2022. You know, it's either going to be the Rams or the Bengals. And, uh, you know, if you're not passionate about one side or the other, it's not a very interesting game to watch, is it? I mean, this is, you know, we, we like to take sides, but the scientists have to really be dispassionate and say, look, this is what we're finding. Now, you can't just stop there. Now you have to sit down with people who do project policy and propose and put out proposals for policy and say, okay, now that this is the information we have, how do we interpret that in terms of what needs to be done next? And that's not any different than a, um, uh, than a, um, uh, a clinical trial, for example, where you may take very good measurement of the outcome and report it accurately. But at some point, somebody at the end of the trial has to say, therefore, we will use this agent for hypertensive effect, or we will not use it, or we will do this. Because the clinicians are standing by at the bedside saying, what do you want me to do? I mean, that was a great study, but so what? What do we do next? 
And it's the same thing with policy. The policymakers need to get the guidance from those who have studied the issue and figure out what are we going to do. And then because we're dealing with human beings and not experimental animals or laboratory animals, uh, somebody once told me, you know, why is it better to do research on animals than humans? And the answer is because animals don't try to fake it when it comes to their risk factors, <laughs> the way people do, right? People are people. And so within the field of public health, there is a whole discipline known as behavioral health science. And it sometimes gets fused with mental health and psychiatry. And although they are related because they deal with behaviors, in fact, behavioral health science is how will people absorb the information you're giving them? Let's presume that all the information is right and the policy linked to it is just the right policy. But as you say, if it came from somebody in a white coat and an ivory tower, is the public going to accept it? Are they going to change their behavior as a result of it? And will that behavior change be sustained over time? And right now with the COVID pandemic, we're seeing all those issues coming to the fore in the political forum. You know, do they believe what they've been told? Do they accept it to the point where we'll actually behave accordingly? And even if they do, look at the mask wearing that took place in the earlier days of the pandemic. There was a lot of compliance out there. But now we know people are getting fatigued, they're getting tired, they're fed up, you know, et cetera. The mask got itchy, you know, whatever it is. Uh, they're getting itchy generally, and they want to move on. They have a sense it's time to move on. And um, But meanwhile, you know, the requirement for the mask may not have gone away. Because throughout all of this, one thing I can assure you, the virus, if it knew how to care or not to care, it doesn't care. You know, it's a predator. We are prey. And its job is to go after its prey. And, and that's it. So you have this it's, confluence it's, of forces. It's interesting, you, it's interesting you use that term requirement, because I think what you mean to say is the scientific requirement. And uh, what you're explaining is a, a, a lot of apathy that has occurred over time. This is one of those uh, also very interesting cultural phenomenon that occur within the world and the, uh, in general, in the U.S. in particular. If anyone who traveled to Asia, you know, 10 years ago knows that it is very accepted to wear a mask in Asia. And certainly, certainly if you're in Japan during uh, the, the pollen season and things like that, people wear masks. It's just a common part of their culture. Uh, nobody would ever do that in America prior to 2019, you know, 20 and things like that. Uh, but it's, it's, it's evolved quite a bit. And that can actually be a good thing because in some cases, it can be a requirement that can provide safety and improvement uh, to public health and things like that. And I think that what has happened, though, is this a potential scientific requirement became a political mandate and then cynicism and perhaps in some cases the science suggested that you may or may not at some point be getting a, a great benefit from this but it's a political requirement. And uh, you know, living in a state of New Mexico, 
where just yesterday we lifted our uh, our uh, political requirement. Uh, every other state around us had li lifted it uh, long, long ago, and the the case rates, as far as I know, are, are really not much different between them for a variety of reasons. Um, it's it's been very interesting to see that uh, and to see the requirements in schools, and you don't always have. As I'm, I try to look at this scientifically and objectively, of course, and you look at you don't always see. Uh, data that support the decisions in, in schools and others and things like that. But I, I, I kind of understand sometimes why, why those political mandates were done, but it's been a, it's been a very interesting uh, intersection between political science uh, requirements, scientific requirements, et cetera, that you could go on and talk about all day, but uh, I, 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 it was interesting your use of that term. Yes. You know, there is no doubt uh, books will be written, really interesting books will be written about the last two years. And when it started two years ago with the very first webinar, it was a free public webinar that um, Turo and New York Medical College, our Center for Disaster Medicine, put out for the public um, on the last day of January in 2020, when in the whole country, there were less than a handful of cases so far. It was that early. And we said at the time, this virus is full of surprises. Things are going to change. We're going to learn more and more about it. That page of the infection, infectious disease control manual that currently has not yet been written on this particular agent, that page is going to fill up with information over the next several years. And I predicted that people who have not even been born yet are going to end up writing books 100 years from now on what happened in 2019, 2020, 21, and 22. Just like today, we're still reading books about World War I and what happened and was it, you know, was it a good war, was it a bad war, and so forth. And there'll be plenty of armchair quarterbacks who legitimately We'll look over what was done and say, here's where you really drove the point through and really worked. And here are some spots where you really missed an opportunity, could have done this, could have done that. And again, that is the nature of open inquiry and uh, the humility of learning after the fact what you could or should or would have done. And I predict that that will happen and we will hopefully learn and we'll make mistakes in the future when something happens like this again, Lord forbid, but let's hope we never make the same mistakes. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think uh, part of the challenge with requirements and mandates and guidance and everything else like that is everything has happened so darn fast. It's impossible to keep up. Even within the lab, I have people calling me every day. Hey, do you are you guys studying the new variant? Well, I'm still working on the variant from the last time. <laughs> Just constantly changing. And I think the appreciation for heck, this has been fast, which is way faster than we usually. I mean, we, you know, it's it's uh, it's yeah. moving slow. Yeah. Uh, and so I think you're right. I'm sure that history will determine what was the right approach in hindsight uh, with, with the appropriate data and, and, and hopefully we'll be smarter from it on the way on, on the back end, both in how we handled it from a public health consumption, how we can learn to 
uh, decrease our risk to live even longer and, uh, and all of those other factors. Well, one thing that's obviously been a topic of interest uh, for many people is, is, and that I, people always ask me as well, and I'm sure you're, yourself, and to me, it's kind of a, a, a no brainer, but I'm interested in your thoughts on the idea of the risk assessment or risk relative to taking a relatively novel vaccine versus not taking that vaccine. And, and, and you know, of course, history will reveal itself, uh, you know, and we're doing one of the largest scientific studies ever done right now on humankind. Uh, what is your, do you have any perspective on that based on your experience? Yeah, many times. And, and I worked on, on several different vaccines when I was at the CDC, uh, most notably measles and varicella, but I worked on the other childhood and adult vaccines as well. Um, but many times it is a balancing of risks that are clear and known and relatively immediate versus the theoretical possibility of a risk that could be present in the future. Probably the best example was the uh, introduction of a universal recommendation for varicella vaccine. Varicella was a nearly as complete as you can get universal disease of childhood, extraordinarily rare for a grown person in the US not to have had varicella by the chickenpox by the time they are adults, uh, certainly uh, fewer than 1% of the population. Uh, and varicella spreads so efficiently that a household contact almost invariably ends up as an infection in the recipient. So you have this and you have this immediate risk of varicella, but varicella does not kill all of its victims. In fact, it does kill and it's particularly dangerous for people with compromised immunity, which we know. So initially the vaccine was put out for children who had family members who were immune compromised because the risk of infection was huge. The risk to the child was small, even with the infection, but the risk of transmitting it to somebody and potentially killing them was significant. So the vaccine initially was rolled out in that way. And then over time, the safety of the vaccine became more apparent. And so, and, and by the way, the number, the proportion of people in the population who were immune compromised also has crept up over time as we're able to save more and poor people with malignancies and lupus and things like that. So you had these two factors going in directions, safer vaccine, more immunocompromised, the benefit of vaccinating everybody grew. And by the way, we never thought of vaccinating adults because like we said, in those days, everybody had had chicken pox, so there was no need. Then another question came up that we hotly debated at the time. We know that the varicella virus really never leaves the body once it's infected. It becomes dormant. Some say it's in the basal root, uh, in the dorsal root ganglia uh, and remain there dormant. And then a smaller population percentage will see the, vac the virus recrudesce, which literally means to reroute itself and establish itself as herpes zoster, 
which we also know as shingles, which is painful and debilitating, although it is uncommonly life-threatening, but still a very significant uh, disabling condition that you want to prevent. So the question was, giving this uh, attenuated live viral vaccine to the entire childhood population, would this increase the risk of later life shingles or earlier onset of shingles, which because of the life curve, which also translate into greater prevalence, population prevalence of, uh, of shingles. And there was no way to answer that question. There was no way to answer the question at the time. Uh, the consensus gradually became, and this was over a period of 10 years or longer, consensus grew that uh, there was such a clear benefit to the vaccination acutely and preventing infection in people who would be uh, potentially taken out by the infection, the contacts of the children, that whatever this theoretical risk of long-term shingles, uh, theoretical long-term risk of shingles, you know, was not equivalent. It was it was less. And so the risks were outweighed once again by the benefits. And so the, the universal vaccination became policy. In the meantime, we've been able to develop two vaccines against shingles. So we've offset at least some of that risk. And forgive me, I don't know the latest data on this, but as far as I have heard, I'm not aware that we have ever found a greater risk in later life shingles in the original cohorts who were vaccinated as children against as against uh, varicella. So that's a complicated situation. It takes into consideration many, many factors. But the reality is that with careful dissection of the different pieces of the decision making, you can come up with a reasonable policy based on the information that you have. And what you have to hope for is that you don't have a um, uh, coronavirus two, you know, SARS two, like we got, which is a virus that constantly surprises and keeps throwing us curveballs. So, in many ways, it's been one of the most difficult ones to manage in that regard. Right. Do you, Do you think ten years from now, uh, if you had a crystal ball here, that we'll be getting uh, uh, COVID vaccines as a matter of uh, with course, you know, sort of a, a, an annual thing or a part of, you know, children and things like that? Or or do you think that we'll sort of fight through this and it'll go away and then at some point? Um, well, uh, Jake, I'll gladly prognosticate if you agree never to show this clip 10 years from now. <laughs> <That's fine>. <laughs> <laughs> now, I can't prognosticate. Uh, some have speculated and, you know, in science, we don't speculate. OK, but uh, some have speculated that we could eventually end up with a COVID flu shot combination yeah. that's given, yeah. you know, once a year. Mm -hmm. And then we have a public education campaign, <laughs> which has varying degrees of success every year saying, you know, please get your flu shot, please get your COVID flu shot, you know, whatever it is. That's one, that's one scenario of many. Um, another is that, um, uh, that this fades into the background. And uh, it may turn out that between considerable natural immunity coming out of the widely dispersed Omicron variant, uh, which did some of its own immunizing, 
by infecting yeah. lots of people. And right. the, then the extreme effort to vaccinate huge segments of the population. That way we actually see for various ecological reasons that as a species, it just kind of fades away into the background. The way certain species of trees or bushes or uh, animals, plants, you know, it becomes not extinct, but just becomes less of a prevalent competitor. Remember, it has to compete against other respiratory viruses. And if there are other viruses for which the population is less immune uh, as, as competing predators, they're going to lose that advantage over time. This is pure speculation by many and not by me because I just don't speculate. But uh, wait and see is the only good answer I have. Well, fair, fair enough. I, I uh, now that we're, we're we're done predicting the future here or trying to, I'll uh, let you off the hook. And I want to thank you. This has been a very interesting discussion, and I appreciate your time today. And uh, we'll look forward to uh, future discussions. Thanks a lot. Thanks. And I would just say it's great to have this partnership with Loveless. Uh, you've done fantastic work in the past, as have some of our folks, and uh, uh, it's a wonderful connection to have. So. We're enjoying it immensely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Loveless Biomedical Podcast. 